This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. You know, we like to start out every show looking back at what happened on this date in history. What's most curious for today is what happened 10 years ago yesterday, which was that hostilities began in Iraq. We're going to talk a bit about that, specifically the media's failure to cover that adequately with a talk in our second segment with Christina Borgeson. Christina has edited two excellent books on the subject of the media and how, uh, how it gets involved in playing the game of power. The second one was Feet to the Fire, the media after 9-11, which followed the excellent Into the Buzzsaw, leading journalists expose the myth of a free press. I want to thank Gary Chu for the uh, email he sent us about an interview with Christina Amanapur that involved a couple of journalists who got the story right. To quote from CNN.com, How could so many incorrect assertions in the lead-up to the Iraq war have been taken as fact? After the war, some of the United States' leading newspapers were forced to apologize for getting it so wrong. But two reporters consistently got it right. Jonathan Landay and Warren Strobel, former Knight Ritter reporters for the McClatchy newspapers. We tried to compliment the McClatchy organization uh, many times in the show, and of course frequently quote from the Sacramento Bee, we all owe them a vote of thanks for the fact that they were on the ball back in 2002 and 2003. Noted CNN in an interview with Christina Amanapur marking the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War, they cited reporters' access to top officials in Washington as one of the top problems. The top-level bureaucrats, they said, had more of a propensity to spin toward the line that the Bush administration was pushing. Warren Strobel told Amanapur, Most of our reporting was with intelligence, military, and diplomatic mid-level and lower level, the types that journalists don't really talk to or go after. And for those that don't get it, we would explain that the mid-level and lower-level guys knew what was really going on and decided to tell the truth, not go with the political spin. We hope, dear listener, you go on the web and check out the video that includes a complete interview reflecting on the journalism that led up to the Iraq War. The journalists also explain why some of their own newspapers wouldn't even print their stories. We'll have more to say about that in our second segment. But let's pause, count to 10, take a deep breath, and go back to starting the show as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our actual date in question is the 21st of March, which is sometimes the first day of spring. This year it took place yesterday. It was on March 21st in 1413 that England crowned King Henry V, who would win the Battle of Agincourt and make England one of the strongest kingdoms in Europe. Thanks to the family genealogist, this correspondent was able to discover that as the arrows of Henry V rained down upon the French nobleman at Agincourt, they killed most of my relatives. Aww. Evidently, a couple of them who missed the arrows left France to uh, seek the warmer climate of Portugal. Yay. And here's one that, that frankly has to warm my heart just a little. It was on March 21st. In 1591, that Pope Gregory XIV prohibited all betting on papal elections. Also on the length of papal reigns and on the appointments of cardinals. 
As David Letterman might say as regarding stupid pet tricks, as always, please, no wagering. Although it is Radio Parallax's understanding that the odds on Pope Francis I having won the election last week were 7-2. to two. On March 21st of 1925, Austrian physicist Wolfgang Pauli introduced his famous exclusion principle, which states that in an atom, no two electrons can occupy the same quantum state simultaneously. His work later won him a Nobel Prize. And sadly, on March 21st in 1963, Alcatraz Prison, the notoriously harsh maximum security facility in California's San Francisco Bay, ceased operations. Our quote of the day comes from the aforementioned David Letterman, who said last week, When the Cardinals are done selecting a new pope, smoke appears up in the chimney. White smoke means a new pope. Black smoke means they have not reached a decision. And blue smoke means the Cardinals are having ribs. Our quip of the day comes from a movie review. Andrew O'Hare, writing in Salon.com, started his review of Oz the Great and Powerful with the following. Saying that this expensive prequel to The Wizard of Oz has its heart in the right place, isn't the same thing as saying it's actually good. Our joke of the day comes to us from the Borowitz Report. To this we also owe a debt of thanks to Gary Chu. Said Andy Borowitz yesterday, under the headline, Cheney marks 10th anniversary of pretending there was a reason to invade Iraq, We have Dateline Houston. In a somber ceremony attended by former members of the Bush administration held on the grounds of the Halliburton Company headquarters, Donald Rumsfeld, Condoleezza Rice, and Paul Wolfowitz and other key members of the lying effort were brought together. Calling the assembled officials profiles in fabrication, Mr. Cheney praised them for their decade of dedication to a totally fictitious rationale. Cheney said, making up a reason to invade a country is the easy part. Sticking to a pretend story for 10 years, that's the stuff of valor. Cheney added that their steadfast charade had raised the bar for all future administrations. He asked, when it's time to invade Iran or Venezuela, will the president have the will to make up an entirely fake reason to do it? That remains to be seen. The ceremony ended on an emotional note when Mr. Cheney placed a wreath on the tomb of the unknown weapon of mass destruction. We have several worthy stats today, so I think we'll do all of them. Starting with 15%, which represents the increased sale of horse meat in France in recent weeks, as news stories about horse being found in frozen prepared meals apparently rekindled interest among French men and women who ate horse in their childhoods. There are about 700 remaining horse butcher shops in France. Here's a sad one. According to the AP, every day around the world, 39,000 girls under the age of 18 are forced into marriage with their families, often selling them off for dowries, often to much older men. And closer to home, according to Quinnipiac, 52% of American Catholics think the church is out of touch with them. For example, 62% want the next pope to change the church's stance on celibacy for priests, and the ordination of women. 
81% want the next pope to do more to combat sexual abuse, which may have something to do with the prior desired reform. And 64% want the ban on contraception lifted. Because yes, it's the year 2013, and there is currently still in place a ban on contraception. Yes, like many American Catholics, we at Radio Parallax do hope that the new Pope, Francis I, will rocket the Catholic Church forward into the 16th century. But frankly, we're not holding our breath. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for yet more idiot diplomacy with the news that Dennis Rodman, fresh from his summit with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, went to the Vatican in hopes of meeting the new pope. Rodman explained, I want to be anywhere in the world that I'm needed. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the future hopes of mankind with the news that Jeb Bush's son, 36-year-old attorney George P. Bush, has now launched his political career by announcing he was running for Texas Land Commissioner. And in an even more terrifying related story, which I think we should go into, former Florida Governor Jeb Bush made the rounds of Sunday talk shows last week, ostensibly promoting his new book on immigration, but at the same time obviously auditioning for the 2016 Republican presidential nomination. Writing about this in the DailyBeast.com, Peter Beinhart noted that when he was asked if he would carry Bush baggage if he chose to run, Jeb said no. History will be kind to George W. Bush. Wrote Beinhart, Sorry, Jeb, but history is written by historians, and they consistently rank your older brother as one of America's worst presidents, in the same tarnished category as Millard Fillmore and Warren Harding. And the public agrees. In polls, only Richard Nixon is less popular. To which he adds, no wonder, given that W turned a budget surplus into a $1.3 trillion deficit, presided over the worst financial collapse since the Great Depression, and badly botched the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Of course, isn't that just like the liberal media? They make those sound like they're a bad thing. And it was an ugly week last week for electric cars. Based on analysis in the Wall Street Journal, not our favorite publication, by Bjorn Lomborg, not our favorite climate scientist, who nevertheless did point out, and we have to accept these statistics, I think, until proven otherwise, that electric cars are not as green as their owners would like to believe. Before one leaves the showroom, it has produced 30,000 pounds of carbon dioxide, mostly in lithium battery production, which is about 16,000 pounds more CO2 than a conventional car's manufacturer produces. Lomberg notes that electric cars need recharging, of course, using electricity powered overwhelmingly, unfortunately, by fossil fuels. So as the owners cruise around feeling virtuous about what they're doing, they're indirectly emitting six ounces of CO2 per mile, which is about half as much as gas-powered cars. But 
To emit less overall CO2, that electric car must be driven at least 80,000 miles. It's not to say electric cars are not a good idea, but as long as they're hooked up to conventional uh, fossil fuel generating electrical power plants, uh, well, there's a problem, folks. Which is one reason why on this program we think nuclear power absolutely has to get a second look. Now, we like to quote from the Week magazine's Only in America file, which we usually recaption as the America's Disgrace of a Legal System file, because the boneheaded items you find there are usually involving our legal system or, for some reason, school administrators. And hold the phone. We've got a little of both today. First item, the widow of an Indiana man is suing, of course, suing a Catholic church that wouldn't allow his couch-shaped headstone in its graveyard. Shannon Carr says her husband loved nothing more than to sit on his couch watching NASCAR and football. The Reverend Jonathan Meyer, however, said that a granite couch was not an appropriate monument in our historic ceremony. And you know, on that one issue, I think we're going to have to side with the Catholic Church. Secondly, two Howard University students are suing for admission to a sorority. Yes, suing for an admission to a sorority. Lauren Compton and Lauren Cofield say their human rights were violated by the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, which they charge did not admit them because they objected to a hazing ritual in which they were forbidden to wear the colors pink and green. Yes, America's legal system, the envy of the world. And to round out those two items, we have one final piece, naturally involving school administrators, sent to us by Pablo, which notes that apparently they've just gone nuts in the state of Maryland. Notes the Daily Caller, the public education system in Maryland has officially gone off the deep end. The old line state, where kids have been suspended from making guns with their fingers and with toaster pastries, now boasts a school district that prohibits hugging and homemade food in public elementary schools for anyone except a parent's own children. And by the way, parents must also register to enter the playground, and they can't push anyone except their own kids on the swings. Officials with the St. Mary's County Public Schools say the new rules are necessary to provide a generally safe environment. Superintendent Michael Matriano told the Maryland Enterprise, we're not violating anybody's rights. Note of the piece, for whatever reason, Maryland's been ground zero for school districts propounding goofy laws. Until now, those laws seem to have been related to um, things that were kind of like guns, such as an elementary school in Silver Spring, Maryland, where a six-year-old boy was suspended for making the universal kid sign for a gun, pointing at another student and saying, pow, on the heels of a Baltimore second grader being suspended for two days because his teacher thought he thought He'd shaped a strawberry pre-baked toaster pastry into something resembling a gun. And as far as we can see, well, we guess, for now, I guess, being pushed in a swing by anybody other than your parents. A Maryland state senator has now crafted a bill to curb the zeal of public school officials who are tempted to suspend students as young as kindergarten for having things or eating things that aren't exactly anything like real guns. We'll try and follow that one. All right, from around the world, apparently Argentina has denounced the results of a referendum in the Falkland Islands. 
where the vote to remain under British rule was 1,514 for, three against. Argentina, which calls the islands the Malvinas and considers them its territory, dismissed the referendum as a sham. Well, if anybody knows sham elections, it probably would be Argentina. And from India, we have the news that one of the six men accused of a notorious gang rape in Delhi has been found dead, hanged in his prison cell, which he shared with three other inmates. Prison officials called the death a suicide, but the family of Ram Singh said they believe he was murdered, and the government's ordered an investigation. Two other suspects have been begged to be transferred from their prison, saying they've been repeatedly raped and beaten by guards, also other inmates. Said their lawyer, A.P. Singh, My clients are very terrified. They said yesterday before the open court, shoot me, but don't send me back to Tihar jail. I would note that this correspondent is okay with either option. And it might be a good time to note that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But uh, based on my understanding, it's pretty clear that those guys were the perps and that getting raped and beaten, well, I don't know. Seems fair to me. They can dish it out. Let's see how they can take it. And let me reiterate, that opinion is mine alone. And I would like to once again express my thanks for the fact the free exchange of ideas on this radio station has a long tradition of going forward without censorship. I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are too. All right, in the few minutes we have left in our first segment, I think we should talk about one of the most crazy-ass news stories of the month, which comes from the Sacramento Bee, a reprint from the New York Times, article by Tom Shanker, David Sanger, and Martin Fackler under the headline, U.S. Counters North Korean Threats. Yes, the North Korean hereditary communist nut dictatorship, which apparently announced last month in a fit of peak it was withdrawing from the 1953 armistice that ended the Korean War has provoked this response from us, the Pentagon, the United States, the U.S. of A. I quote, the Pentagon will spend $1 billion to deploy additional ballistic missile interceptors along the Pacific coast to counter the growing reach of North Korea's weapons, a decision accelerated by Pyongyang's recent belligerence. <laughs> and indications that Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, is resisting China's efforts to restrain him. The new deployments announced by Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel last Friday will increase the number of ground-based interceptors in California and Alaska to 44 from 30 come 2017. Noted the piece, the missiles have a mixed record in testing hitting dummy targets just 50% of the time. But officials said Friday's announcement was intended not merely to present a credible deterrence to the North's limited intercontinental ballistic missile arsenal. They said it also is meant to show South Korea and Japan that the U.S. is willing to commit resources to deterring the North. On Radio Parallax's analysis, this means that the U.S. is going to spend an additional billion dollars to upgrade the 30 intercepting missiles, which have never been proven to work, to 44. We're going to add 14 more missiles. Now, if North Korea's got a missile or two capable of hitting the U.S., don't you think that 30 to 1 odds would be good enough? Do we have to make it 44 to 1 odds? 
Well, that's a bit of a rhetorical question, because if you studied the history of the results of these interceptors, you'd say, yeah, yeah, you're probably 100 to 1 odds, because they just plain don't work. Now, in the past, the Pentagon has been able to successfully shoot down missiles with missiles. But in general, to do so, they had to put tracking devices on the first set of missiles so that they could be tracked, located, and shot down by the second set of missiles. Radio Parallax feels pretty certain that Kim Jong-un and the North Korean military probably won't be so accommodating as to put tracking devices on any missiles they might want to launch at North America. And, you know, come to think of it, it might be cheaper just to send Dennis Rodman back over there and ask Kim Jong-un nicely not to fire any missiles off. Might not work, but then again, the missiles might not work, and they're going to cost a billion dollars with a B. So, you know, I think we should give Rodman a shot. I do have to quote a little more from this piece because it's such a delicious piece of insanity. For example, how about this paragraph? Although U.S. and South Korean intelligence officials doubt the North is close to being able to follow through on a nuclear strike, or that it would even try, given its almost certain destruction, analysts say the country's aggressive behavior is an important and worrisome sign of changing calculations in the North. Hmm, yes, it is worrisome. They did note that some people in the administration were reluctant to add more missiles. I guess those would be the sane people or the ones that were not going to cash the checks given to them for the missiles. But again, just to wrap up here to finish quoting from the article, the anti-missile systems are considered less than reliable, and some officials were reluctant to pour additional resources into deploying more of the existing technology. But in testimony of the Senate Armed Services Committee, General C. Robert Keller commander of the U.S. Strategic Command, made clear they serve a larger purpose, making our friends in the military industry richer. No, actually, that's not what he said. He said the larger purpose was deterring North Korea from acting irrationally is our number one priority. So there's the lesson. If you know anyone out there who's acting irrationally, you may want to contact the appropriate health care authorities to see if they want to dabble in utilizing defensive ballistic missiles as a treatment. And on that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for our talk with Christina Borgeson. That will be interesting. 